Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us. We're glad you're here. And uh, it's always good to be together. Can you believe we're into February already? Um, we even had the sun come out a little bit for a couple days. I got to get a little yard work done. It's that uh, time of year when we don't get to do yard work all the time, so it's actually kind of fun when we do. And uh, other times of the year, you just wish that this would, things would stop growing. And, uh, but it's good. Good to be together. Little yard work is good uh, to squeeze in there every now and again. Um, been a busy season for us. We have family retreat coming up March 1st through 3rd. Uh, $25 per person or uh, $50 for couples and families of whatever size plus bringing some uh, food help. If we have a small enough group, we will try our best to accommodate trying to keep families together. Um, and if you have flexibility and are willing to sleep in one of our semi-private bunk areas, uh, you can let Mackenzie know that too. She's helping me organize some of this. We've got a friend of mine, speaker coming. He's gonna do uh, uh, some talks for us and we're gonna have a good time together. Lots of games, food, fellowship. It would be helpful to us if you sign up uh, sooner rather than later because we're doing the food all ourselves and so we're going to divide up that work of meals and uh, if you have trailers they have uh, hookups available we could have a lot of fun together so last week we talked in our series in Deuteronomy about the right way we go about loving the Lord our God and how uh, when we prioritize the love of God as the center of our life, it really does make everything better and things work better. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Did I die? I mean, I didn't die, but it sounded like my mic died. Uh, Kevin Youngblood, who had some of the ideas for um, this sermon series that have been very helpful for me, he translated it this way. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. And you shall love Yahweh, your God, with every thought, with your every breath, and with your every endeavor. Every thought, every breath, every endeavor that you undertake has the potential, at least, to be filled with the love of God. That is a good way to live your life. So then uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, Moses goes on with some strategies about how to be intentional about actually loving God like this. If we don't aim and we don't take steps and we don't have discipline and we're not intentional in trying, things won't happen. So Deuteronomy is very concerned with the passing on of faith to the next generation. And so uh, uh, this is some of the strategies that Moses gives about how we go about doing that, doing that. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are on the road and when you're going to bed and when you are getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your foreheads as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Be strategic about having God's word before you. 
Um, and I would say, if, if, if you didn't get all this right and you're still in process, take steps in this direction now. Whether you're single, whether you're married with kids in the home, whether you're empty nesters, these are healthy things for all of us to be doing. Um, we have a little picture frame that just has scriptures that scroll through it. And it got taken down with the Christmas decorations, and we haven't found it again. But I miss having those words before uh, my eyes. But I was delighted. Uh, yesterday, I was up in Haley's room, and she just has uh, all of these scriptures hanging from her wall, some of her favorite verses, such good words. And as her dad, I just was so proud to see those words that she had written in her own hand that were before her. So whatever steps you can be taking to be intentional about this relationship with the Lord, keeping him foremost as the priority of our life, we need to be uh, systematic in doing that. And so uh, this is specifically more geared toward parents, but again, these are good things for all of us. Intentionality in prayer, scripture reading, uh, honest awareness of what you are modeling in your home, what are you doing before the other people that are, it, it, maybe it's just you, maybe it's your spouse. Um, I try to be a good role model for our dog Chai, but she misses it completely. Involvement in hospitality. This is, this is something that's crucial, and this is something I want to encourage us in a little bit, that we need to grow in this. The art of hospitality is being lost in our generation, and uh, any steps that we can take about opening our lives, and if you can't host someone in your home, be intentional about other ways to do this. Going out and, and being intentional about uh, a meeting place and inviting others to have fellowship with you. Uh, there's all kinds of possibilities for us with that. Of course, involvement as a family in the mission of God, being aware of negative influences that come into your house through screens, just habits, even if it's not nefarious necessarily, the habit of consuming media over and over and over again, uh, that level of distraction, it has a cumulative effect. Uh, there are negative influences that come into our kids' lives from outside the home as well. We need to be wise about that. Uh, it's so important at the appropriate times to, and this, was, this is one of the blessings of being a part of a community of faith, and, and of course there are other godly people in the community as well and other good influences out there potentially, uh, but to have godly voices who have the Lord in mind to be able to speak truth into our kids' lives, that is a valuable thing. Uh, being able to clearly articulate a family identity, this is something we don't, we're not, we are Gruens. We work hard, we have integrity, we do not lie. That was about as simple as, as what we articulated a lot of times. And yet, we all know that. If you are a Gruen girl growing up in our household, these are not strange words to you. Uh, and then this is one that I really wish I would have done better at. And we still have a lot of fun, but it's just like collateral fun just because we live a kind of crazy, chaotic life. But being intentional about cultivating fun in your family. 
We need to be intentional about cultivating fun in our church and what we do here. And we do a better job at that sometimes than others, but that's okay. Uh, The Lord helps us with all of these things. Don't let this list discourage you. Let it be an encouragement. Let it help you kind of think about ways to raise the bar in your own own household. Okay. I've put it off as long as I could. But now we have to deal with some of the tough words that we find in Deuteronomy. It's time to deal with the texts of terror. As Christians, how are we supposed to understand some of these admittedly brutal texts, especially in light of Jesus' ethic that invites us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you? So let's hear some of these verses now from chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are about to enter and occupy, he will clear away many nations ahead of you, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. These seven nations are greater and more numerous than you. When the Lord your God hands these nations over to you and you conquer them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaties with them and show them no mercy. You must not intermarry with them. Do not let your daughters and sons marry their sons and daughters, for they will lead your children away from me to worship other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and he will quickly destroy you. Those are firm words. Moses outlines for Israel a special kind of warfare that God decrees against the Canaanite nations. It entails the complete annihilation of all traces of Canaanite culture until there's nothing left of them in that geographic location. You don't make treaties with them. There is no peace between you and them. You don't show them mercy. You don't intermarry together with them. So if God is love, how do you understand and reconcile this with God's commands in Deuteronomy to wipe out entire groups of people without mercy? Some Christians have had to wrestle with this and and try to chew on these things together. Well, let me muddy the waters even a little bit more. Oh, I skipped this verses. This is what you must do. You must break down their pagan altars and shatter their sacred pillars, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols. For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the peoples on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his special treasure. So that's some of the reason, the rationale behind the harshness of the statement that we've been asked, uh, but that the Israelites were asked. Uh, let me muddy the waters even a little bit more. It was just, just the tension of how, how we are to understand this call to have no mercy for, the, at that, for that people in that time and that place. 
So uh, Richard Dawkins wrote this book uh, some years back called The God Delusion, uh, which uh, really his argument has resonated at least with a lot of people <coughs> who he seemingly provides semi-intellectual grounds uh, to help justify a godless and religionless kind of life. In my mind, however, it, it, it raises more questions than uh, it solves. But Dawkins' way of understanding, he puts, a, he centers in of the ethical problem, he, as he describes it, in the Judeo-Christian uh, uh, tradition. And Judeo-Christian, that Judeo-Christian tradition, we are rooted in the belief of a God who is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful, he knows everything, and he's taking care of everything, and he has plans. Dawkins says, if you, say, if you claim that kind of God, here's the problem you have with it, that the God that is described in the Old Testament. This is according to him again. A God who sanctions genocidal brutality, misogyny, homophobia, slavery, megalomaniac, maniacal narcissism from megalomania. If God is God, can he really be a megalomaniac? Is this the only way to understand those difficult words that we find in the Old Testament? Or is there a possibility, a possibility, that there is more to the story, so to speak? This is a very particular way that you have to read the Old Testament out of context, without the historical critical considerations in mind, that you are just taking specific texts to build this certain case. And yet I freely admit that there is a tension in understanding these things. But is his, what he is recommending, is that the only way to see things? I always liked what C.S. Lewis said, who uh, started life as a committed atheist and then found faith in the Lord. He said this, a young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. There are traps everywhere. Bibles laid open, millions of surprises. God sneaks up on us. His words find us in places. And even if we are trying to dismiss God and live like there is no God, and I would rather just not think about any kind of religious things, and we all know that there's problems associated with that, and I'm just going to do my own thing. Thank you very much. God doesn't leave us alone. There are little questions that keep coming and ideas and these existential questions about why am I here? What is something, why do I experience this is beautiful? Why does this mean so much to me? If we're just, if it's all just meaningless, why do I think of this as so good? Why am I attracted to this goodness? Young, athlete, young atheists can't be too careful. 
In fact, he goes on to say that uh, God is rather unscrupulous, as C.S. Lewis kind of joking words, in the ways that he sets up traps to make people think and consider their faith and consider what their life is about and what's really important. Um, Nevertheless, Christians have had a hard time understanding texts like Deuteronomy 7 and uh, have felt uneasy about those texts in, in the scriptures. And let me begin by saying, if you don't like the words that we, that we read in Deuteronomy, uh, show them no mercy. That's okay. These texts should disturb us, and that's okay to let them disturb us. And it's okay to hold this intention and for it to create even a little bit of cognitive dissonance for us. That's okay. But the first point that I want to make is that if you call yourself a Christian, here's what you cannot do. You cannot pick and choose your own Bible. Even the difficult words in the scriptures, you have to come to terms with in some way. Now, a lot of times, it's easy to just, we don't want to do the work that it takes to come to an understanding. Um, And that's a problem. But I believe that the Bible we have, it is the Bible that God intended us to have. And it's reliable. And it's non-negotiable. And when there's a tension there, we need to let that tension inform us and help us ask questions. What we cannot do is just cut it away and dismiss it. See, if you are a fake Christian, fake Christians try to ignore and cancel words of the Bible they don't like. So if my enterprise really is, I just want a little bit of God sprinkled on top to feel good about my otherwise self-serving and self-centered life, and we try to use the Bible in that way, there are certain things that you're going to have to do. There are certain words you're going to need to cancel or ignore in order to do. And so uh, the Old Testament is always one of the first things to go. If I'm trying to create God in the image of Calvin, I've got to get rid of a lot of words in that Bible. I'll just cut out the Old Testament completely. People attack the Old Testament. People attack Paul in particular. Paul says some difficult, challenging, hard-to-understand things. So then I've got to get Paul out of there. Well, I'd like to keep 1 Corinthians chapter 13 about love, but everything else. And then you've got to get rid of other New Testament authors. And then you only have the Gospels. Well, okay. And then I only have one Gospel. Okay. And then I only have the red letters. If all you have is the red letters of Scripture, if you have one of those kind of Bibles, and you are under the enterprise of trying to make God in your own image, you are either still going to have to ignore a lot of the words of Jesus Christ himself and dismiss them or get rid of them because you don't understand who Jesus is. And so what we cannot do is just carve off the things that we don't like. We need to wrestle with them. It's good 
to wrestle with these things. This is what Jesus himself says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So whatever big picture plan God has been working in human history, including this little window that we're looking at in Deuteronomy, uh, tough words that God speaks through his servant Moses, in some way, the overarching arch of it all, the big story, the meta-narrative the meta behind all of this, is God is moving a plan forward that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ himself. I think it's okay to let texts like this disturb us a little bit. I think that's good for us. I think that needs to help us ask certain questions. And I think it's okay to let these texts bother us, these, these acts of God, these words of God bother us, because you know what? These things bother God himself. They bother God too. So listen to these words from Ezekiel. I think you should read the rest of the... I'm just going to give you a little excerpt from chapter 18, but read past verse 25 on your own. Do you think that I like to see wicked people die, says the Sovereign Lord? Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. However, if righteous people turn from their righteous behavior and start doing sinful acts and act like other sinners, should they be allowed to live? No, of course not. All their righteous acts will be forgotten, and they will die for their sins. Yet you say, the Lord isn't doing what's right. Listen to me, O people of Israel. Am I the one who is not doing right? Or is it you? That rhetorical question sends shivers down my spine. The Lord hates to see wicked people die. The Lord is just. The Lord does right in everything. They will die for their sins. There's only one reason why a person will not die for their own sins. There is one, only one possibility of someone taking on the death that I myself most assuredly deserve to die because of my own personal sins. And that's what we celebrated around this table earlier. And that's 
I hope one of the ideas that comes to our mind when we pause and think about the significance of what we share in the Lord's Supper. Theologically speaking, there is a bigger problem than humans face. There's, there's a bigger problem than death. And that's the problem of sin. Sin unchecked. This is just my observation and my thoughts with this, but I believe that sin unchecked is always going to lead to greater hardship, greater destruction, and more death in the end. Is it possible? I'm just raising questions now. Is it possible that God sanctioning the destruction of these Canaanite nations, this was a limited geography for a limited time with a limited group of people, as, as big as it was, by God moving that people out, destroying that people, and making room for Israel, is it possible that that action in the end, that it made a way to deal with sin and actually reduced death and hardship? Can we even entertain that possibility? And then keep in mind that what is described of the specific kind of warfare of Deuteronomy 7, it's not the normal means of engagement for fighting wars, not even for Israel at this time. The normal rules of engagement for fighting war, you can read about that in chapter 20. There's something particular going on in chapter 7. And the key concern of this text is that through accommodation and making peace and intermarrying and coming to terms with, well, that's just the way they do things and we do our things and then suddenly we're all doing our things together and we're mixing our things together. The concern of God is that the people of Israel, this infant nation that is so inf influenced by what's going on around them, that they will slowly be assimilated and led astray by the nations around them. God is very protective over the infant nation of Israel. Just like a parent is protective over the innocence of a young child. If you're a parent, you understand this. So this is just, just one analogy or picture to kind of help understand this. God was protecting what was going on at this infant fledgling nation to protect them enough to build something special. Don't talk to strangers. How many of you parents just say, talk to whoever you want, to your three-year-old? And when they invite you into their van with tinted windows and you don't know them at all and they're offering you candy, make sure you take that candy. And then when they ask you to come sit in their lap, just do it. And we all have a protective instinct when children are young, right? Of some kind. And some of us draw those lines a little bit more different, uh, different places. And 
We, we, we are protective over our young people. And yet, as they grow, we don't have to be protective the same ways. You know, a, a, a younger child is going to be more vulnerable than uh, uh, someone who's in their teen years who has grown in some wisdom and understanding. They know something of not everything in this world is safe. There are dangerous things out there. They know a little bit more about what could harm them and who to trust and who, so that our kids, as they grow up, they can grow into another reality. For I was a stranger and you welcomed me. So what may not be appropriate at one age is actually the mission and purpose of another age. Can you see that God is doing something in Israel, trying to create something special as a light for the nations? You see, the Canaanite nations were not innocent, harmless people. They were not the sort of people that you want to hire to be your babysitters. Cutting and self-harm, witchcraft, divination, necromancy, cultic prostitution, religious orgies, child sacrifice in the most brutal and disgusting ways. Simply put, the ancient Near Eastern world of this time, it was dark, it was gross, it was perverted, it was, it was brutal. And yet God is trying to protect something and build something completely different in this dark world. A kingdom of priests who would become a light to the nations. And God is jealous to protect that. That has to inform our understanding of difficult texts like this as well. Can you think of a New Testament example of God protecting the newborn church from degrading influences? When did God protect the newborn church in an overwhelming force kind of way? Do you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? And the circumstances of that? It's Acts chapter 5, if you want to reference that and look at that. There was a short window of time when in the young church, they were so in love with God and with, with each other. It says the believers had one heart and mind. They were so intimate in that fellowship. So that whenever anyone had a need, someone would sell a piece of property. There was no needy person among that fellowship and that community. And I don't think the Bible is recommending that that's the way, the only way that we, can, we should be living as Christians. But it was showing us, hey, when the Lord is before you and you are loving your brother, the walls of separation begin to come down a little lower. To the point where we take an economic responsibility for other people because we love so much and we're not... There's something special happening at that time. 
And Ananias and Sapphira come in and they pretend and they're faking it. And it's a lie. And it costs them their lives. And God takes those lives. And fear and awe come on the young church. Now, I'm glad that that did not continue to be the norm. Because how many other Christians have lived pretending to be more holy than they actually are in, the, in a church setting or whatever? Pretending to be more holy than they actually are. I've got it together. I'm right. I don't know about that joker, but I'm doing pretty good. Thank you. But there was something special in a specific time, in a specific place, that the Lord is jealous to protect. As an aside, was God right to be worried about the influences the Canaanite nations and others around were to have on Israel? Or was God wrong? It was safe. If no intermarrying, no problem making peace, coming to terms. The history of Israel is this heartbreaking cycle of them being led astray and following hard after other gods, following hard after their own hearts and selfish desires, community being destroyed, love of God nowhere to be found destruction and repentance and a remnant coming back and trying again. It is this heartbreaking cycle. God was right because he understands the hearts of his people and how easily our hearts are enamored by things that are lesser and not good sometimes. Even with all the possible clear warnings that God provided through Moses and Deuteronomy, Israel runs again and again and again into sin and away from the Lord their God. And God is just. And they pay the price of that rebellion. Well, there's so much more to talk about with these texts of terrors. I know we're just scratching the surface. But I would invite you to study these things and think about them and wrestle with this a little bit. Uh, Lord willing, next Sunday, we're going to keep going a little bit further with some of this. Uh, but to close this morning, I want to invite us back to a place of humility as we consider texts, difficult, disturbing texts like we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Uh, Logan, you can come up. This is... This is me wrapping up. Are we open to the possibility that God knows things that I don't know? There are things about holiness that you don't fully know or understand. 
There are things about justice and the cost of justice and how to hold justice and be just. There are things about justice that you don't know or understand. And consider this. What about... Are you open to the possibility that there are things about love that we don't fully understand? And somehow the Lord our God is holy and he holds his justice together with his mercy and love. And it's an amazing thing. And it's a beautiful thing. And I got to say, I've been at this a long time. I've gone to school to study these things. There is always a mystery inherent to this stuff. And it always is going to take our faith in some level. Faith is not opposed to knowledge. We should seek knowledge any way we can get it. But faith is always going to involve the element of trust. Will you trust that God the Father is the one who Jesus described? Is the one who Jesus followed faithfully his entire life? The one to whom he said, not my will, but yours be done. Can you have faith like Jesus to believe that God is love, to believe that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all? Well, that's one invitation. Another invitation that we always have is uh, for those who would like the prayers of this church. And uh, we always make opportunity for those who want to join this journey of discipleship through uh, baptism and uh, making that kind of commitment of your life to the Lord your God. Thank you for your attention. These are deep things. These are not easy to understand necessarily, but we're going we're gonna to keep digging into these texts of terror a little bit, and the Lord will help us get where we need to get to. Uh, let's go ahead, though, now and stand and sing our invitation song together. Song number one.